Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. Lord, I thank you for giving us your word. Um, Please help us to understand it well and to um, keep it with us, to live by it and reflect on it daily. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Corinth was the opposite of Philippi. We've been looking at the book of Philippians since February. Uh, That church there at Philippi was filled with really hospitable and missional people. It was probably a really sweet church to attend. Um, Last week, Pastor Mike started us in a new series through the book of Corinthians. Now, at Corinth, you had a totally different situation. This is a church filled with snobs, uh, a lot of sexual weirdness, a lot of theological weirdness, and lots of personal attacks against Paul. So it really is the opposite. These two churches really were the opposite kind of experience. And so this book, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, these letters from Paul, there were four of them, and we only have a couple Uh, uh, still, uh, just these two. Uh, But these letters are filled with correction. These letters are even filled sometimes with tears. I'm writing with tears, that type of a thing. It's a a difficult thing. So he begins with his thesis statement here after a long introduction, verses 1 through 9. He begins with his thesis statement, and then he's going to work on this for several chapters. In verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be not united in the same mind and the same judgment. So that's his thesis. This is what he's after here is he's appealing to them to agree. So if you're reading along in your Bible, you might want to underline or circle that word agree. He wants no divisions, no splitting, no tearing, no cracks. It's a word that you might use if somebody gets a cut in their body or uh, if there's something amputated or if a flower has been uh, ripped in half or something like this. There's a division, there's a, uh, there's a splitting, there's a tearing, and he doesn't want any of that in the church. He wants them to be united, he says, in the same mind. 
And look how he begins the sentence. He says, I appeal to you, or some of your translation says, I beseech you. That's a rare word for Paul. He uses it a few times, and he only uses it for very crucial ideas. So if you were to look up all the times that Paul uses that word, he's just about to announce something really, really important. And so this is very important. This is the main thing that he's going to emphasize here for several chapters is to beseech them and to beg them and to appeal to them to stop doing what they are doing and to begin agreeing with each other to have a unified church. Now, why is that so important? He knows that they have a serious problem with unity. This is not a peaceful church. People are not getting along with each other. You might have seen this sometimes in churches. Sometimes uh, churches go through this kind of in phases, and that's probably normal for, for, for relationships, for any relationship. You've seen that when sibling relationships or in uh, husband-wife relationships or in f- even friend relationships. And certainly you see this in churches as well, that sometimes you go through these phases where people aren't getting along very well. Other churches seem to have a legacy of division, Uh, One church here in Auburn has split at least seven times, split meaning that a new church actually starts when a major group leaves that disgruntled place. And here you have in verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now that's an interesting statement because Paul has just received a letter from them and they apparently didn't say anything about this in their letter. And he wants to let them know that, hey, even though you didn't tell me what was actually going on in your letter, I have heard from Chloe's household, and we don't know who she was, somebody who was uh, connected to this church and, and somehow reported to Paul, hey, you'll never believe what's, what's happening here. And so Paul wants to say, look, I actually know what's going on, so I'm speaking with authority and with knowledge into this situation. You guys aren't getting along, and I know it. Um. So this is a little bit like, uh, you know, parents calling home, you know, they're gone for a long weekend or something and they call up and they say, you know, so how's everything going there? And the kids are like, "Uh, fine, mom, everything's fine. And there's 12 people passed out on the floor or something like that. And we'll get it cleaned up. And Paul says, look, I know what's actually going on there. I've got Chloe's report of quarreling. There's altercation. There's strife. There's contention. And now he's going to give them some examples. Verse 12 says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Now, what was going on here is you had a popular form of teaching in that day that was very zealous for their favorite speakers. And this was happening in the secular world, these traveling teachers And everybody had their favorite speaker, and they would give insults to everybody else. So it was a little bit like the trash-talking that happens over sports teams. You know, uh, you guys are terrible and all that other kind of stuff, except it was ten times worse, and this was right in the middle of the church. And it had to do with church leaders. Apollos and Paul apparently got along with each other. They didn't have anything uh, against each other. Um, Paul had basically planted this church and then eventually left. Apollos came along later and did a lot of discipleship. They didn't have anything against each other. They played very different roles, but they were very different people. And so some people liked Apollos more than Paul. And some people were like, well, you know, I'm actually a Peter guy. Like, I I go all the way back to the rock, man. And then other people were like, well, I'm a Jesus guy. Have you ever had somebody like that? I've had people like that, too. We just love Jesus here. We don't argue about anything. We just love Jesus. 
So I follow Cephas, I follow Christ, I follow Apollos. And Paul is saying, look, <laughs> I know that you're doing it, and all of you are doing it. You've all got your favorite church leader. And as a result, the church is dysfunctional. You've all got your little groups. And what he's going to do here in the next few chapters is say, your actual mission is retarded because you are incapable of moving out and doing any kind of evangelism and discipleship because you're so divided amongst each other. Now, differences can be very beautiful. Paul wants unity instead of quarreling. And we saw the same thing going on in, in Philippi where Paul, in the book of Philippians, where Paul tells them to be of the same mind and to agree. But that doesn't mean that we agree about everything. Differences can be very beautiful. They're, they can be difficult and challenging. But we don't need to agree about everything. That's how cults and dictators and bad husbands rule people. They want lockstep agreement and obedience with everything and so on. And that's not what we want in the church. But we do need to agree about important things. And we need to live in peace with each other. And this requires a lot of listening for the purpose of understanding. So that you're saying things like, okay, I hear what you just said. That makes sense to me. You're actually listening to people. You're letting other people influence your ideas. You're willing to let go of a huge amount of detail uh, and allow other people to actually shape uh, what we decide to do here. It requires people to stay calm. Strong emotions can do a lot of damage. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, which is refraining yourself from doing these emotional things, saying emotional words. It's that KMS. Keep mouth shut. When you start to feel your heart rate going up, and you're just ready with that, ah, but you always boom, and that, all that kind of stuff. All you're doing is pouring gasoline on a problem. KMS, man. KMS. Keep mouth shut. You know, somebody comes up to you and you say, can you believe what a jerk, you know, she is? And you're like, oh, yeah. No, KMS. That's a KMS situation. Actually, you know, it would be nice in those kind of situations if sometimes people would say, you know, she's actually my friend and you just slandered her. Man, if people would just do that. Oh, well. Requires forgiveness. Agreement requires forgiveness. Disagreements are really uncomfortable. You get your feelings hurt. You never listen to me and all this kind of stuff. And it's easy to feel hurt. And Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's his glory to overlook an offense. So sometimes you got to say, all right, can, am I man enough? Am I woman enough? To kind of overlook that and just go on joyful and bless this person, even though he really doesn't deserve it. Or do we need to talk about this? But either way, we come to that point of forgiveness. And it also, agreement may also require getting help. You remember that in the book of Philippians, where Paul asks uh, these, uh, some, somebody to come alongside these two ladies that aren't getting along with each other. He says, come alongside them and help them to get along. Because sometimes we, we get kind of flooded with conflict and we can't find a way out of it and we need some help. So Paul wants churches to agree. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to agree about everything. That's weird. That's dysfunctional. But he wants them to agree about important things. And regarding the things that they disagree about, he wants them to be able to do it in such a way that it's a real low heart rate kind of a thing so that we can still enjoy living together and being family together. He doesn't want them to have these huge barriers between them. He doesn't want them to have unresolved conflict out there 
which at this point is actually hurting them in their mission. Their whole purpose is to bring glory to God by showing people what love really looks like and explaining the gospel to lost people. Well, lost people in their town is like, whoa, those people are not getting along. That's the last place I would go. Those people can't even get along with each other. Every 15 minutes, you got a brand new church popping up here in town because they can't get along in this place. And so they go over there. Why would I want to become a Christian if that's what I'm seeing? So Paul says, you got to cut that out. And they're arguing with each other, particularly their argument here. And we're going to see more arguments throughout the book. But their primary argument here has to do with which Christian leader is better. And it's kind of an all or nothing thing. It, you, can't, you can't just say, you know what, Paul was awesome in kind of starting the church. He's got that entrepreneurial thing. And then, uh, you know, Apollos came along and he was just a nice guy and he was here for a long Like, you can't just say, you know, strengths here, strengths there, love them both. No, it's like, Paul's a jerk and he's not a very good speaker and he always comes to town. He's always like, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. I don't like Paul. I like this guy, Apollos. Much more interesting speaker. I love that guy. He came over to our house once, brought a casserole. He was awesome. I love this. No, so it was all or nothing. People are saying, this needs to be a Paul church. Paul started this church. And other people are like, no, this needs to be an Apollos church. We've moved past the thing. And these political factions are growing. They're criticizing each other, and the mission is retarded. There's a quote from Spurgeon, and it's funny because he's basically saying, it's fine if you fight over position, just fight for the lowest position. <laughs> he says, if you Christian people must dispute about precedence, always fight for the lowest place. If you aspire to be last and least, you will not have many competitors. There will be no need to demand a poll for the lowest seat is undisputed. <laughs> and Paul says that these divisions are displaying gross immaturity. It just shows that they don't really understand what God is like, what the gospel is, and what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Their quarreling is immature. And you see this in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I love those questions. First of all, is Christ divided? Well, the Corinthians were divided. I'm loyal to John MacArthur. I'm loyal to John Piper. I'm loyal to Mark Driscoll. I'm loyal to Pastor Adam. Well, I'm loyal to Pastor Mike and so on. But Jesus had a ministry of reconciliation. That was the point, and we're going to celebrate it here this morning in the Lord's table, where God reconciles, uh, God reconciles sinners to himself through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And the incredible thing is that the result of that, the implications of that, is that we are reconciled to each other. So the whole ministry of Jesus Christ, you've got this central idea of reconciliation, unearned and undeserved reconciliation so it's this incredible thing he's reconciling it's the ministry of reconciliation uh we are the body of christ and we are designed for oneness and these long-term arguments and these factions reveal that we are not close enough to God's Trinitarian nature, three in one, somehow getting along with each other, three in one. We are not close enough to his gracious nature while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And we do not understand our own role taking on the ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, that he gives us the ministry of reconciliation 
because we have been reconciled to God. So he says, is Christ divided? You guys aren't getting along with each other, but the whole point of this is reconciliation and oneness. And then he says, was Paul crucified for you? How many leaders do you know that basically say, look, you guys need to stop thinking that I'm so cool. You guys need to stop thinking so much of me. Was I crucified for you? Did I die on the cross for you? Of course not. Jesus was crucified. Jesus gets the glory. And some religious leaders love to be the most important person in the room. But Paul says, I didn't die for your sins. And my friend Apollos didn't die for your sins. Pastor Adam didn't die for your sins. So it's stupid to fight over which one of us is more awesome. None of us is awesome. Jesus is. That's hard as a young pastor. You know, you're kind of like, hey, I just did this baptism service. And you're like, wasn't that cool? Is that that like the best baptism service you've seen in a long time? Like, you're kind of like, okay, you're kind of like, I'm good at this, right? And it takes some time to realize, you know what? It kind of doesn't matter what people think about you. You're going to have a lot of people that love you right now, and they're not going to love you so much later. Who cares? You got some spiritual gifts. You understand the gospel. You know how to open the Bible. Go do it. Who cares what people think? He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Same kind of thing here. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? We come into the faith because of who Jesus is, not because of who the preacher is. That's important. We come into the faith because of who Jesus Christ is, not because of who the preacher is. And so in verse 14, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius and that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. (laughs) Now, Paul isn't against baptism. He's against treating baptizers like messiahs. Some of you might have some of that in your past. You may have learned the hard way that if you Um, if you worship a Christian leader, you are going to be disappointed. And we've all heard the, I mean, the terrible stories, people, you know, uh, pastors committing adultery and things like that. Um, But even just on a small scale, dude's going to step on your toes. He's going to say something insensitive. He's going to turn out to be a normal person. And, And people are like, hang on, I didn't know you were normal. We need to go find a, a different church where we have this amazing pastor and we've never heard this kind of preaching before. Please, please don't do that to a pastor. It's not good for you and it's not good for the pastor. I had an old friend who recently made the newspapers for uh, having an affair. Uh, his wife had had an affair first. It was one of these terrible things. And it made uh, the national news very large church on the east coast this is the you know we kind of went our separate ways after seminary he started writing books and went on the speaking circuit and so on and Libby and I were in an airport once and we saw him this was before he fell and uh, we saw him and he was surrounded by I don't know groupies you know and he's sitting there pontificating and wearing the $200 jeans and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, hmm, I can't help but wonder if these things are connected to each other, groupies and adultery. 
the goal of a good preacher, and it's the same thing for a worship leader, right? And it's the same thing for a women's Bible study leader, whatever it is. The goal is to draw glory to Christ. Draw glory to Christ. Oh, you know, and we want to feel good about ourselves. We want to we want to feel like we're doing something important. We want people to say, oh, that was amazing. That was the best Bible study or you're the best this or that stuff doesn't matter. And the sooner that we get that, the less dangerous we will be. So then Paul explains what actually is important to him. He has just explained what isn't important. He has just told a whole bunch of people, listen, you think too highly of me. You got to stop that. <laughs> I don't want groupies. I don't want fans. Burn the t-shirts, okay? Get rid of that. And now he's going to say, here's what actually is important. What's not important is getting people to like him. But what is important, he says in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let me just read that one more time. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And he's going to go on for several chapters and explain what he means in verse 17. So that's a really important verse. Put a big old box around it, stars, yellow highlight, all whatever you need to do there. This is a, a linchpin argument for him that he's going to follow up for several chapters. His goal here is to preach. And that preaching has built-in power, but it's conditional. It's powerful if, first of all, the content is the cross. The content of it, the central piece of it is the cross, which is that I am a sinner deserving of eternal conscious punishment in hell, but God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, to become a man. So you have the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, and here he is, he lived for about 30 years, and then he died on the cross. And he did that as our representative. He did that as our substitute. So I deserved eternal conscious punishment, except Jesus Christ died on the cross. And when I repent for my sins and put my trust in Jesus Christ, then, I, uh, then my sins are forgiven because I've already been punished by Jesus Christ on the cross. Now that is the central message of the Bible. Jesus died to save sinners. If you had to make a haiku for the whole Bible, then it'd be something related to the cross. Jesus died to save sinners. That's the message of the Bible. That's the central thing. And so Paul is saying, look, my preaching has power when that is repeatedly emphasized and explained to people. Secondarily, he says, the presentation rejects what he calls eloquent wisdom. You see that there, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Eloquent wisdom makes the sermon lose its power. Eloquent wisdom makes the sermon lose its power. The presentation, the style of the presentation can cause the sermon itself to lose its power. So we got to make sure we understand what eloquent wisdom is. In Paul's day, entertainment was very different. We have our favorite TV shows, our favorite bands, and so on. But back then, they didn't have any of that. They had traveling teachers. This was the big, exciting thing that happened. Is that the city center, the little town square, 
These guys, these traveling teachers, traveling philosophers, most of them were called sophists. They would come to town and they would teach in the city center. Sometimes a couple of them at the same time and they would draw crowds and then these crowds would decide which one they liked better and then they would fight with each other on which one was better. And these teachers used eloquent wisdom. Wisdom meaning they're talking about the meaning of life. Uh, They're talking about how to live life. So it has to do with uh, Sophia. It has to do with wisdom. But it's eloquent in the sense that the emphasis of their teaching was on style, not substance. There was a particular kind of rhetoric. And if you were really good at public speaking, people loved you. Now, Paul wasn't trying to draw crowds. He was trying to make disciples. That's a very different thing. Because the presentation can empty the gospel of its power. The strength of the gospel and the strength of the church does not depend on the talent of the preacher, but on the atonement and deity of Jesus Christ. Which is why you can sit under a pastor for 10, 20 years who isn't a very good public speaker, but he opens the word of God and explains it as best he can. I remember a guy in preaching lab in in seminary and uh, preaching labs are brutal because everybody's new and so everybody's kind of learning how to do it and so on and we're evaluating each other and so it's a very strange scenario to preach in because you've got all these people evaluating your illustrations and stuff like this. But so, you know, day after day, you're listening, listening to this, these sermons. And there was this one guy, he ended up as a small church pastor in northern Wisconsin. And he was just a very simple man. Wasn't particularly gifted in teaching. He did have a spiritual gift, I think, but that's different. And it's important that we understand the distinction there. A spiritual gift doesn't mean that you're necessarily very talented. It means you got power. Because God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So, you know, this guy is just a basic guy, he's just a good guy. And I remember thinking out of all, out of, all of these sermons that I've listened to, you know, I, I would go to that guy's church. I would go to his 35-member cornfield church. I would do that because he's just a good guy. And he just gets up there and he's like, well, here, you know, here's what the passage says. And he just kind of goes through and it's like, that's what you want. That's what you need, somebody to open up the Bible. The strength of the gospel and the strength of the church, the strength of Cornerstone, the strength of the big capital C church in this world does not depend on the talent of the preacher, but on the atonement and the deity of Jesus Christ. The strength of the gospel and the strength of the church does not depend on the production quality of the worship service. It depends on the Holy Spirit who convicts and enlightens and regenerates. Many large churches in America are based on what is called the attractional model. The attractional model. And the idea is beautiful that uh, we, you know, we're going to attract unbelievers into worship services so that we can tell them about Jesus. But there are unintended consequences when we shape the church into something that looks cool to unbelievers. There are unintended consequences. When the church is cool, you accidentally de-emphasize humility and suffering and foolishness. Now, some of you are elders or will become elders or deacons. So this is important to think this through. 
What is the purpose of the church and what are we supposed to be doing here? Some of you will be looking for other churches at some point in your life uh, for various reasons. So you need to know how to find a good church. And when the church is cool, you are accidentally de-emphasizing humility, suffering, and foolishness. And those are crucial things. Humility, suffering, and foolishness. They are crucial to understanding what the gospel is and they are crucial to living the Christian life. But we can only talk about humility, suffering, and foolishness as theoretical ideas if we are honestly motivating people to come here because, of, because we are really cool and you will be really happy if you join us here. If church is the cool thing to do on Sunday morning or Saturday night or whenever it happens popularly now, then it is probably failing to confront the values of this world. When the pastor is cool, then you de-emphasize unity. When the pastor is cool, you de-emphasize unity. Let me explain how. I think our senior pastor here is a good example of that. Months ago, I was advising Mike to start preaching more often so that people would begin to attach to him instead of me as the new leader of the church because we are on our way out here and heading to the Middle East, and he's the new guy. And so I'm, I, I came to him, and I just said, look, I, I, you know, I think it's very important that you begin preaching more often so that people start attaching to you. And he refused and quoted this passage from 1 Corinthians. He kind of did it on purpose. <laughs> he doesn't think it should matter who's preaching on a Sunday morning as long as this thing's open. That's an incredible confidence in the word of God. And he is aware that people have their preferences. Some of you guys like him more. Some of you guys like me more. And he's like, so what? Who cares? Yeah, some people might leave or whatever. So what? What's the purpose of the church? What's the purpose of a pulpit? I mean, this whole arrangement between Mike and I is very unusual. People advised Mike when we first started all of this that he needed to ask me to leave. And I've offered several times. I'll go. I won't make any trouble. This, this kind of a thing. I've said that to him several times. Uh, because it's hard for the new pastor to lead with the old guy sitting there. Yeah, the former guy. <laughs> the former guy. <laughs> It's all relative, isn't it? (laughs) Right. But both Mike and I reject that idea. We're willing to do whatever needs to happen behind the scenes to keep enjoying each other. Not just getting along and pretending like it's working, but actually having days-long conversations so that by the end of it, we want to go out to dinner with our wives, the four of us. Um, we're close friends and probably always will be uh, because we are willing to put the time and the suffering into the relationship so that it stays close. And we think that's the best thing for Cornerstone. I want my last gift to this church to be me with a big thumbs up and a smile on for his new vision for Cornerstone. Now look, some guys are more talented in the pulpit than others. Some guys are funnier. Some guys have better slides. But what matters? <laughs> what matters? What matters is preaching with power. 
right? That's what matters. What matters is preaching with power. It is not eloquence. It is not popularity. It is not drawing the crowds. It is preaching with power. And if there's 35 people here or 350 people here, that's what matters. And it's effective, even if there's 35 people here. It's effective because the goal is not to draw the crowds. The goal is to preach with power. Crowds were kind of annoying in the ministry of Jesus Christ, if you think about it. He's trying to disciple about 12 people, and it didn't take with one of them. And he's hanging out with these guys in the crowds. I mean, he's loving the crowds. He's feeling compassion with the crowds. But the crowds were exhausting to Christ. The crowds were something to escape from. The crowds were this fickle group of fans. And the more that Jesus talked, the, the, the smaller the crowds got. Seriously, you just said, eat me? I, I'm sorry. Eat me? Drink my blood? Sorry. I'm out of here. The more that Jesus said, you know, sometimes people say, uh, well, Jesus used parables, which shows us that preachers need to use illustrations. Have you read the parables of Jesus Christ? A lot of them are designed to make it not understandable. So that the only way you can understand what he's talking about is if you become a disciple and saddle up to him and say, what was that four soils and stuff? I mean, it was a cool story and everything, but what are you talking about? That's what discipleship is, is that you lean up next to him and you say, I don't know what's going on. Can you explain it to me? When the pastor is cool, you de-emphasize unity. You de-emphasize unity. You break the church into little places with their little fans. Another thing, when the church is cool, then you enable consumerism. I mean, as consumers, we rate products and we pick what we want, when we want it, and we shop where we want, and we don't buy what we don't want. And attractional churches are relying on things like choice and appeal to draw people to church. And again, I understand the heart of it. If we can just get the bodies in the door uh, with some kind of appealing environment, then we can explain the truth to them. So we give them five flavors of worship music so that you can get exactly what you want. And, you know, you're used to having all this choice with satellite radio and cable television and all these things. So we want to give you these choices at church, too. And then these churches wonder why people leave a couple of years later when the new cool church opens down the street. Thousands of people shifting from one place to another because we've got this new cool thing, a better choice. I worry that treating people like consumers and treating people like connoisseurs hurts people's ability to be receptive to real discipleship. And I think it retards their ability to worship instead of evaluating from a distance. Paul is careful to avoid the popular communication styles of his day. Paul was careful to avoid speaking And having a style, he was certainly capable of it. It wasn't that he was incompetent and found some theological excuse. No, he's a very gifted communicator and he intentionally dialed it down so that he would not use the popular communication style of his his day. And that communication style drew crowds and super loyal fans. He avoided that style because the packaging of the gospel is very important. The packaging itself, the the, the style, the feel, or the ethos of the service 
And the way that you feel when you're around the leader, do you feel this awe, like, oh, he's amazing, or you're like, oh, he's just a guy. The feel of it should emphasize the nature of God, who is not cool but glorious. And it should emphasize the nature of salvation in which God adopts fools like you and me and then commissions them to go and preach the gospel to the least of these. The whole feel of it should emphasize the nature of the Christian life, which is suffering to bless undeserving people, which is persecuted mission. When the pastor is cool, you set up young preachers to think too highly of themselves. These young guys, you know, in their teens and 20s, they're looking at this rock star pastor and they think, I could do that. One of the most important messages of my life is you are not awesome. It's true. I am a wonderfully ordinary person. <laughs> I'm a wonderfully ordinary pastor with a Bible. I've, I've made mistakes here at Cornerstone. I've done some good stuff, stuff I'm proud of, stuff I'm like, oh, man, if I was more mature, I would have done this different and that different. So that, that's going to happen all, all the time. But I'm just an ordinary guy with a Bible. That's what you need. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29 says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So Paul is careful about his presentation. It needs to emphasize the cross, and it needs to avoid the popular style. It needs to avoid the popular style, because if he uses the popular style... People are going to like him too much. People will think too highly of him, which minimizes major Bible themes. So he doesn't do that. His presentation is simple, clear, and humble. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to see this in a few weeks. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. But in the power of God. See, he keeps talking about power. It's about power. He wants power in the pulpit. He wants power in the pulpit. And that power comes from the, the clearly explained, unadulterated word of God. It is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. If a church's health depends on the personality or eloquence of a pastor, you're in trouble because the pastor's an, a, a finite sinner. Like, I don't have unlimited power, and I also do a lot of stupid things. So if this place depends on me, we're all in trouble. But this depends on the word of God. And so the purpose of this sacred desk is to open this and explain it as clearly as possible. Because there's great power here. There's power for your heart, for your hard heart, for your broken heart, for your confusion. There's, there's power here for effective mission. You see this throughout the book of Acts. It's not Paul and Peter that go out. It is the word of God that goes out, if you notice. It's the word of God that goes out. And pushes back the gates of hell. It is the word of God that has power. The word of God has the power to make us more like Jesus Christ. 
And so our teaching and our preaching needs to rely not on us. And yeah, we work and we try hard to do it excellently and so on. But the the power of it needs to be pure word. And our teaching needs to be pure word in order to be effective. So people are thinking, well, that's that's kind of weird. I mean, you're this you're, you're like building tents and so on. Like we want our teacher to be like fairly wealthy and and dignified and so on. You're, you're over there sweating. And so like all these sophists are over here. You could come over here. You could you could talk. You're over there sweating and everything like this. And and, uh, you know, you're 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 actually not a very good public speaker. You're if you. If you could just create this church environment here in Corinth so that it wasn't so dorky, then I might actually invite my neighbor to come. Like, why don't you do that? And the reason is because Paul wanted them to focus on what was actually important. He wanted them to focus. He wanted them to understand the the gospel, what it means to live repentantly as God's cherished children. He wanted them to understand how to love God above all earthly treasures. And how to love our neighbors as ourselves. He wanted people to hunger for God's word. And to live reverently underneath the authority of the word of God. And that doesn't happen. That's where the real power comes from. But that doesn't happen. If this place is cool. It's not designed to be cool. It's not designed for a consumer. This isn't entertainment. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, you are great and powerful. You're worthy of worship, worthy of our love. I pray that many generations of people here at Cornerstone would hear an increasingly clear presentation of your word and the gospel in this church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.